Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. In our text today, in our time of study today, I hope will reinforce the sermon you've already heard proclaimed here in this place today, that nothing shakes the hope. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 18. And as you're turning to Genesis 18, we'll begin in verse 1 of that chapter. I'll remind you that today we are now in the fourth part of an ongoing series called Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Uh, Four, well, five if you count the state of the church at the beginning of the month where we talked about Hebrews 11 and walking by faith. So for five weeks now... We've been talking about what it looks like and feels like, what it, what it is to walk in the way of faith. And what we're trying to do is learn some things from our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith, these patriarchs and matriarchs who have done it before us. And we're studying their lives and their experiences as they walked with God, not because they were perfect, not because they were flawless, but because, like us, they weren't any of those things. That they were strong one day and weak the next. They were successful one day and fell flat the next. And yet through all the ups and downs, the, the falling down and the rising up, there it was, an opportunity to learn something and know something about God that they could not have known had they not fallen down. We've been studying the story as it began with Abram and Sarai. By now, five weeks in, their names have changed to Abraham and Sarah. Their story started in barrenness, do you remember? God comes to them and says, I I have a promised life for you. I have an idea of what your life will look like, and the only thing necessary on your part is that you come and follow it. Follow me. And we looked and watched how in the season of barrenness where they were unable to produce what they needed, much like our own seasons of barrenness, where we are unable to produce answers, solutions, uh, fixes to our problems, their call is the same as our call. In the midst of barrenness, when it's dry and we we have no answer of our own, God calls us to a deeper adventure, a pilgrimage of faith where we have to put one foot in front of the next into the unknown. And when we do that and when they did that, we discover that when we walk by faith and not by sight, it means that we have to to lay down our own dependency upon ourselves and we pick up a greater reliance upon the goodness and the love and the trustworthiness of God. That's what it means. And each week we're learning something more. And today, when we open this text, the very first verse of this text gives us some idea of something that's going on, and you got to read it closely or else you might miss it. Verse 1 in chapter 18 goes, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat 
of the day. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Now before we even move past the first verse, it's important that you and I grasp some understanding of the significance of that statement. It's not just a program note. It's not just a time stamp so that you know it's, it's happening in the afternoon. It's not simply a blocking direction so that you know where he is on the stage of this production that's playing out before us. He's not just at the entrance of this, of this tent. It's not just in the afternoon. But when I read that, and this week when I read it and read it and read it again, it occurs to me, you know, when you sit at the seat or at the, the entrance of your tent in the heat of the day, it reminds me of a conversation that we all had here a few years ago. In fact, do you remember a sermon series? Um, it's been about three, maybe even four years ago now, called The Seven Deadly Sins. Remember this, this study that we did? And it turns out that in the fourth century, this monk by the name of Evagrius began to identify a set of sins or struggles that we all seem to have in common. And he began to talk about them. And one of those sins was the strange sin that's so hard to define called sloth. Sloth. And in that study, when we talked about the seven deadly sins and we talked about sloth, we defined it this way, that it's made up of two very powerful emotional dynamics in the person. One dynamic is, is called tristitia. It's, it means this deep sadness. If there's sloth, there's this, this, this deep sadness, and it's mixed with this other word, an ancient word, acedia. Acedia means indifference, ambivalence. It's a deep-seated sense that you don't care about much at all. It's a bad case of the I don't cares. You ever had a bad case of the I don't cares? And, and you, it's just heavy. And you're sad and you're ambivalent and, and you're depressed as well as you are indifferent in fact, when the monk Evagrius talked about sloth, when he talked about um, acedia, he said acedia is a powerful force, and strangely enough, it seems to visit us in the middle of the day. This is, he used to even call it the, the noonday demon. That's what he used to call it. Do you know why he would call it the noonday demon? Listen to what he said in his journal. He says, Acedia makes it seem that the sun hardly moves. Ever <laughs> had a day when it looks like the sun just does When the sun hardly moves, if at all, and that the day is 50 hours long, then it constrains the monk to look constantly out the windows, to walk outside the cell, to gaze carefully at the sun, to determine how far it stands from the ninth hour. You know what the ninth hour was on the monastic clock? Lunch. <laughs> so you know what acedia is, and you know what the noonday demon is all about. You're at work, you're in your office, you maybe you're at your cubicle, students maybe you're at the desk, and it's getting close to lunch, and the clock just seems to not even move. In fact, on some days it looks like it's even just going backwards, and you're like, what the heck? Is this ever going to end? And you so don't care. You've given up any ounce of, of energy or, or attention. Acedia. A great writer, Kathleen Norris, talked about acedia as a, as a strong, powerful force in our lives. It seems that she went through a deep and dark period in her life. She was married for many years uh, to an alcoholic 
who was abusive to her in, in many ways. And in her book about her life, uh, entitled Acedia and Me, which is a clever title, this is what she said about the power of Acedia. She said, Acedia's genius is to seize us precisely where our hope lies, to attack our hope, to tear away at the heart of who we are and mock that which sustains us. I think Abraham had a touch of Acedia. There he is at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. It's too hot to get up and do anything, and even if it weren't, he's too tired, he's too fatigued. Not just fatigued like you get by middle of the day, but fatigued like you get at the end of a life. And at the end of a long period of time waiting for something to happen that just doesn't seem to want to happen. And Sarah's inside working in the tent doing her thing. And there he is sitting at the entrance of the tent absolutely vexed by what we're going to call the noonday demon. And he's thinking about his life and he's thinking about where he is at this point in his life. So many years ago I heard this promise that God was going to He's going to bless me with children, and he was going to give me this land, and he was going to give me a name. Remember the promise that God gave him years ago? And to this point, none of it has unfolded, at least not in the way he can perceive it. And He's left alone there with this heaviness, acedia maybe. And in order for you and I to understand the power of what's about to happen in this chapter, we have to feel the heaviness of what Abraham must have been carrying with him as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. All right, so that's verse 1. But the story continues. He looks up and he sees three visitors who show up, strangers. He, He doesn't know them. He doesn't know where they're from. But he gets up and begins to serve them. He washes their feet. There's activity now. Acedia leaves him, and he's moving. He's serving, washing their feet. He has Sarah prepare three meals for them. He talks to his servant and has them prepare a calf. And after several hours of preparation, they serve this meal. And just a few yards away, a few meters away from the tent there, the three men are eating, and Abraham is standing at the entrance of the tent standing now. And Sarah is on the inside of the tent, and a conversation unfolds. This is what happens. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife shall have a son. He's heard that before. And Sarah was listening, see, at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age, which I love that phrase, by the way. Advanced, is that politically correct or what? I mean, they're advanced 
in age. Now that's just putting it very kindly, very respectful. In fact, I thought about that this week, and I thought, you know how on the outside of our Sunday school rooms when we have, this is the you know, 30s, 40s class, and it has the numbers, the little sign that says this is the 50s, 60s. Maybe the most respectful thing is to somewhere along the way just put um, advanced in age, <laughs> and I'll let you decide which door that goes on, okay? They were old and advanced in age, and here's the best line. <laughs> it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Okay, yeah. So Sarah laughed. She laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? In other words, I'm old. I'm no spring chicken, but have you, have you seen my husband? <laughs> right? Shall I have pleasure after all these years? The Lord said to Abraham, why did, why did Sarah laugh and, and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't laugh, <laughs> for she was afraid. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. Isn't there an interesting playfulness there in the text? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. No, 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 I didn't. Yes, I did. In fact, because the text does that kind of back and forth, you laughed. I didn't. You, you did. I didn't. Maybe a better Hebrew translation, a literal translation would be that she laughed, and then he said, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> but, oh, yes, she did. And right here, something powerful happens in the sacred text. Laughter. Laughter. Every time there is humor, laughter, wittiness, sarcasm, exaggeration in the biblical text, something is about to happen. You know, when we laugh, something happens to us. Laughter has the capacity to alter the interior of us. Can we just do a little experiment for just a moment to, to explain what I'm talking about? I don't want you to do anything other than listen to this clip for the next 10 seconds. <laughs> All I need you to do is just to pay attention to your cheeks right now. You can't listen to something like that without something happening in you physiologically. I've got one more I want you to notice. But this is a video, a dad who, playing with his little son, just rips up a piece of paper. Check it out. (laughs) 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 
Now that's, that's good stuff, right? I mean, ripping paper is funny, right? That is good. But I want you to pay attention to the thing just happening in us right now as we delight in this moment, right? Laughter has something possible. Laughter does something in us on the interior. It shapes something. It alters something on the inside. And do you know what? Our biologist friends and our neuro, neuroscientist friends, they, they tend to agree. Do you know that laughter is caused by negatively charged impulses that radiate in the brain at the same time. When we laugh, our brain is charged in a variety of places at the same time. Not only in the occipital lobe, which is the center of motion, but in the frontal lobe, which is the center of emotion. When we laugh, those impulses charge both of those lobes at the same time making a, a strange collaboration of all of the systems and organs in our bodies, creating a kind of massaging of the internal organs. When we laugh, when our limbic system is surged with electrical impulses, there is a, a movement within our limbs and our internal organs that causes that massaging within. But not only that, do you know that when you laugh, there is a reduction in a kind of hormone that's associated with stress. But not only that, there is a surge in another kind of hormone, gamma interferon T-cells, if you ask, that's associated with getting healthy and healing the body. If you were to ask gelatologists, these are psychologists in the area of the science of humor, they really exist, if you were to ask them, they would say that laughter, as it turns out, may be the greatest panacea ever. It's been associated with reducing blood pressure. It's been associated with getting rid of uh, or reducing the number of heart attacks and strokes and has even stimulated greater cognitive capacity in retaining information. So when you hear somebody say, laughter is the best medicine, they're telling the truth. But I want to talk today about a laughter of another kind. See, not only does laughter have the capacity to send a surge of electrical impulses into your body, into your brain, that makes your body infused with life and health, I believe that there is a kind of theological laughter, a kind of biblical, spiritual laughter that when we pay attention to it as it occurs in the biblical text, it's meant to infuse within our consciousness or infuse within our soul a, a life that gives us hope, hope. In fact, Joel Kaminsky, in his wonderful article entitled Humor and the Theology of Hope, says that every time humor occurs in the Bible, every time there is laughter that shows up in the Bible, whether it is um, something funny or something sarcastic or witty or exaggerated, it's put there in order to demonstrate some powerful truth. Whenever you see laughter or something funny in the Bible, it's put there in order to recommend or suggest a counter-reality to the reality that seems to be in the story. Does that make sense? So there is, with all the characters in the story, this reality, this base set of assumptions that they have. Things are going one way. Something funny happens in order to demonstrate a change. Something funny happens in order to insert a counter-reality that shakes up all the assumptions in the text. 
Can I give you a couple examples to tell you what I'm talking about? So in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about judging each other, right? He's talking about condemning one another and looking at one another with judgment. And, and, and it's, it's important that he's, he's talking about this because he's talking to religious folks who had come to believe that it was their right to look down upon one another. That if I'm righteous and doing everything right according to the law and somebody else isn't, well then yes, I have the right to look down upon them. That was their assumption. So he comes to them with, with these words. Why do you seek the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you do not notice this, this log in your own eye? I want to say, that's funny. That's funny. That's exaggeration. It's an attempt to get our attention and suggest a counter-reality, and now the conversation has flipped. Maybe none of us should look with judgment upon one another, right? Or in John's gospel, remember the story where, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and he wants to live, and he wants, he's intrigued by Jesus' teachings about life and the kingdom of God. And so he's open, but he's not really publicly open. He comes at night, and he says, I, I really, how, how, how does this happen? What, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can anybody be born again after having grown old? I mean, can one enter a second time in the mother's womb and be born? Well, that's meant to be sarcastic and, and funny. It's meant to insert into the text a counter-reality because his reality is, oh, it's over for me. There's no way I can be renewed. But through the use of humor, there's a flip in the script. Or in Luke's gospel, you remember the story about Zacchaeus? He was the wee little man, right? He's not just the wee little man, but nobody liked him. He was a crook. He was a tax collector, and he swindled everybody. He, he cheated everybody. And so when Jesus and the entourage was walking by, nobody let him in the crowd. He squeezed him out, and he's too short to see over them. So you know what he had to do, right? You remember the story. He climbs this, this dignified social leader climbs the tree, the sycamore tree, and when Jesus sees him, it's hysterical. So when he says to him these words, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today, it's not somber. Jesus looks up, and I imagine is just cracking up and says, Zacchaeus, I, I got to stay at your house tonight. And with that statement, he subverts the dominant script. He he inserts a counter, a counter reality to all those who are around about who is welcome in whose house and with whom do we associate and break bread. You see what's happening? So in the text, when there is humor, it's there on purpose. Peter Berger had these words to say about what I'm talking about. Peter Berger says, humor challenges the dominant, tragic worldview that confines humans to a stoic acceptance of their current existence. Now, let's not move too fast past that first slide. Can we break that down? Humor challenges, when it's found in the Bible, humor challenges the dominant, tragic worldview that confines humans to a stoic acceptance of their current existence. Next slide. In the moment of laughter, our human tragedy whatever it may be, 
is bracketed. It's placed in parentheses. It's put in perspective. By laughing at the imprisonment of the human spirit, the implication is the imprisonment is not final, but will be overcome. So when you hear laughter in the holy text, when you see something that's a little bit funny, God is up to something. And what does it all mean? It means that when Sarah is in the tent on that day, in the heat of the day, and the men are outside talking about things, and she hears them talking about things they don't know about, which is going to happen a lot in houses tonight, right? Where men gather together to talk about things we don't know about. And she hears them out there talking about her in here, and they say, oh, in a year, she's going to have a baby. And she, she laughs out loud. She laughs out loud. And I think it's one of those, those inappropriate kind of church laughs that you can't contain. You know, it's the kind of laughter that happens whenever you, you, it gets out before you can stop it. Like, and she will have a baby within a year. And she's like, you know. <laughs> and they hear her. And, and out here, what was that? And Abraham's like, oh, nothing. <laughs> nothing, you know. Just nothing. Everything's fine, you know. And then there's this conversation, this awkward conversation. Did you laugh? No, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. Oh, no, you didn't, right? And she laughs, but it's not Sarah's laugh. After all that we just said about humor in the Bible, do you realize that when we read this text and she, she bursts forth with laughter over the possibility that her life will explode with life, that there will be more life, more vibrancy, more abundance, and she laughs out loud. It's not Sarah laughing. It's the subversive, defiant Laughter of God. Laughing out loud at whatever it is that she and we think is impossible in his name. Where was the last time that God laughed at your assumption that it couldn't happen? When was the last time that you heard God laughing at what you assumed is possible and not possible with God? See, it's almost as if we can think of it this way. Abraham and Sarah were given a script, right? Here's your script. This is your life. This is what it looks like. And listen, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. And God can do some things, but this is where you're limited, and this is where you're going to fall, and this is what is uh, really your fullest capacity. You won't be able to do these things. And, and, and yet, it's as if, like the baby in the video, it's as if she laughs because she hears the tearing apart of all the assumptions she made already about the limitations of her life. She hears them ripping, almost like the clip of the baby, laughing hysterically. What would it look like for you to learn to laugh at the places where you used to think it was totally impossible, right? That was the rest of my sermon, so. <laughs> yeah, so, that. <laughs> but the most powerful part, point of the whole text is this. In the midst of all that laughing, 
in the midst of trying to provoke us to laugh at the places where we used to think God couldn't do something in our life, where God can't produce something in you, where God can't use you, can't call you, can't empower you. The text is attempting to provoke us to laugh at those places as we see those assumptions torn up. But the most powerful line in the whole text in this chapter comes right there at the end when he says, why'd you laugh? I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Oh, no, you didn't, right? It comes right before that when he says, is anything too wonderful for God? Another translation, maybe the one you have, says it this way. Is anything too difficult for God? Or my favorite translation is this one. Is anything impossible for the Lord? And I think maybe that's the question we end on today. Whatever it is that you are anxious about, whatever it is that you can't figure out, and the thing that has put you on the very edge of fear, hopelessness, despair, you've run out of all your ideas, you've, you've used up all your bag of tricks, you have now come to the edge of your own resourcefulness, and now it's impossible, you say. But is anything impossible with God? There is a caveat. It is this. What you wish is not necessarily possible. Not everything we wish is possible, but everything God promises is. And there is a difference. Not everything you wish is possible, but everything God promises about you is possible. Your life can be full. You can be free. You can be reconciled. You can have integrity. You can have congruency in your life so that your inner hidden life is consistent with your public outer life. Yeah. Is anything impossible with God? Let's pray. God, our prayer is that you would show somebody this day that nothing is impossible with you. Show us the difference between what we wish and what you promise. Show us how to walk faithfully pursuing what it is that you promise, believing that nothing is impossible. And Lord, we recognize that when we say yes to this life of following you, the, the promise that you pour over our lives involves sacrifice. Yes. We acknowledge that it it involves sometimes suffering and struggle and patience beyond our wildest imagination. Show somebody this day in the midst of patience how to laugh our way to belief. In the name of Christ Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen.